This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It's episode number 47 of Play-By-Play Cast and part two of our conversation with Durham Bulls baseball radio announcer Patrick Keenis. Thanks for clicking subscribe or download. Welcome back in, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. This, of course, is the podcast about play-by-play guys for play-by-play guys by a play-by-play guy. I think that's how it goes. Mix that up at some point in time. There's those three things in any order. Uh, <laughs> describe what we do here on play-by-play cast. Uh, as always, you can get in touch with the show. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. I am at Joel Godet at J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. You can email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U.edu, B-S-U for Ball State University, dot E-D-U. And then the podcast, of course, is on Twitter as well, at PXPCast. Uh, love hearing back from you guys, where you're listening, that you're listening, what you want to hear, who you want to hear from, topics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, a couple of you reached out about uh, types of people you want to hear from uh, in coming weeks, and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to, to cater to that. Um, somebody asked about young up and coming people, um, which in some extent, we're all kind of up and coming in our own rights. Even those that have completely established themselves, we can always get better, but I understand what you're talking about. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll go that route a little bit, uh, in a couple of weeks, certainly. Uh, but today is part two of our conversation with Patrick Keenis, who last week we talked a lot about his baseball career, and uh, his career in North Carolina doing some other different things, branching out, kind of establishing roots in that area and uh, getting into college athletics and high school athletics and all of those different things. Uh, One of the things we touched on last week, but we really didn't delve into, is Patrick's experience at the 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio. Uh, We've had a lot of people on the podcast that have done Olympics uh, done Olympics that have done the Olympics in their careers. Uh, we had Mike Corey just a couple of weeks ago, who we talked a little bit about his experience doing speed skating on the radio and doing field hockey on television. Uh, Jason Knapp, if you scroll back through, he was one of the really early episodes. Uh, I think he's in the teens. If you go and find him, uh, back in the podcast archives, somebody, uh, I was talking to last week called Jason, uh, Mr. Olympics or Mr. Olympic sports. Uh, Jason does a little bit of everything uh, and did beach volleyball, uh, among other things, at these past Olympics. I'm sure he'll do curling at the upcoming Olympics in 2018. Uh, So we've had conversations about the Olympic Games and doing Olympic sports uh, here on the podcast, but this conversation is different. Uh, And it's really intriguing for a lot of those reasons. Patrick was hired to do swimming at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Number one, swimming is one of the most important sports at the Olympics. When you think about what you'd watch as a fan at the Olympics, like what do people really care about? Basketball's great at the Olympics, sure. Soccer's a big deal. But the sports that I think people really truly care about at the Olympics are the ones that they never watch. <laughs> and then every four years, like, oh, we got to watch this. 
so swimming, gymnastics, you know, track and field. Those, those are the cornerstone events, particularly of the Summer Olympics. So when it comes to doing that stuff on radio, uh, no pressure. Of course not. <laughs> um, the other part about it is going into 2016, you pretty much knew it was Michael Phelps' last Olympics. So not only is it the cornerstone or one of the cornerstone events that you can listen to on radio or on television, uh, but in this case on radio, it's one of those situations where you're going to be calling an historic Olympics for that reason alone. And you're going to want to have the audio to remember that moment. So make sure you don't botch it. No pressure. So we'll talk about all of that with Patrick Keenis and uh, how he got prepared for doing swimming, uh, how he approached it, because it's a big deal. It's the biggest stage. You know, we've all done Olympic sports at some point in time. We, I, I feel like everybody has been asked to do something and said, you got it. Uh, I, the very first time I broadcast tennis, and to this date, the only time I've broadcast tennis, was... I don't know, five years ago, I think, where I got a phone call literally a day and a half before a conference tournament. And they said, you're doing men's and women's prepare for all six teams. So that's 12 teams, six on each side. I had a day and a half to learn about tennis and prepare for all of those teams. And I'm just going, oh, okay, we'll see how this goes. Uh, you know, we all kind of have those moments. Patrick uh, did that with the Olympics. Uh, now, he ha he had some swimming experience, and that's part of how he got the gig. He had done some high school swimming in North Carolina on television. So he was able to send that to Westwood One. Uh, but this is a whole different ballpark. So we get into all of that with Patrick Keenis this week here on Play-by-Play -play Cast. We start with the dream of being able to call the Olympics on that stage with that event. It's Patrick Keenis on PXP Cast. It was a childhood dream it exceeded every expectation that I ever could have thought of when I was a kid it's something I always wanted to do just like what I'm doing now with the Bulls but there's no roadmap and as recently as I guess a little over let's say 18 months ago the notion of broadcasting Olympics was, it was a pipe dream. Still, at this stage of my career, it was a pipe dream. I barely knew the people who made the decisions there. I'd never met them in person. The Olympics were 15 months away, and there was, there was no movement at all. I mean, they were the last thing on my mind of things that I would be doing last summer. And like a lightning bolt, an email exchange, a dead period for three months, an email that I didn't expect showed up, and then two hours later on that same day, I'm being told about what the job is, that I'm on a short list, give us a little more time and we'll be in touch. And then the next nine days were the longest nine days of my life, and then when I was contacted, again through email, the I was afraid to open up the email because I didn't know what it was going to say. <laughs> I can see the first six words. <laughs> when I opened up the email, there were no words except for 
email me your cell phone number. I lost it. <laughs> so I was thinking it was going to be a yes or a no. I'm going or I'm staying. And it turned out I was going. And for one of the, probably the most high-profile sport in the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing experience. And so not only am I going, I wasn't a swimming guy when I was a kid. I drowned nearly twice. <laughs> when I was six, I was chasing a frisbee in the deep end of the pool. Doug, my middle brother, saved me. And then we were whitewater rafting when I was about 11 in Door County, Wisconsin. Fell out of the raft. The raft hit a rock that was just below the surface. I was knocked out, not wearing a life jacket, thanks, Dad. And the force of the raft hitting the rock pushed the raft back upstream and long enough for me to bounce down. I didn't know how to swim. Bounced down, submerged, pushed off off of the rock down below, catapulted myself up through the water. And as I came up through the water, here came the raft, and my dad lifted me up under my, both my armpits, put me back in the, in the boat. So Now you're talking to Michael Phelps. <laughs> now now I'm, I'm partnering with Dara Torres, and I'm interviewing Michael Phelps four times, uh, interviewing Katie Ledecky, taking pictures with Anthony Irvin. It was an incredible experience. It was harrowing. So got the notice that I was going there late in February, and a couple of weeks later, when the NCAA regionals came into Raleigh, sat down with the coordinated producer who hired me and stuck his neck out to hire me because his boss did not want to hire me. They thought I was a baseball, football, basketball guy. They had had, I guess, not the greatest experience with the previous broadcaster for swimming in London. Interesting. And that when Phelps announced he was coming back, Westwood One is all about audio and all about clips. You have to hammer, you have to be perfect at the finish so that these remain timeless, that they can air 20 years down the road. So they made a change, and the, the number two guy who laid out kind of his neck to hire me, when he, when he called me up, said, sink or swim, for better or worse, you're my guy. Like, no better, no worse, no sink or swim, We're, this is going to be fine. But swim, swim, yes. Fortunately, I did have some video to send them because I, I had done the state championships for swimming for North Carolina and the ACC championships a few years. So I did have at least some video to send them because that's what they wanted to see. They didn't want to see me calling a baseball game applying for a swimming Olympic job. Had to be in that, in that field. So he emailed back and said, really like your sound. But, you know, we're radio, but I feel like there's, there's more to these calls, I can tell. But on TV, he understood I didn't have to give that kind of exit to the finish. But he stuck his neck out. And when we sat down at Starbucks at Crabtree Valley Mall in the middle of March, four months before I left, he said, you're our guy, and you have four months to become an expert on swimming. Go. So that's my, my bull summer was more a, an Olympic and swimming summer with the bulls kind of as the secondary job. That's, uh, Chris Archer, uh, he had a great start, but uh, tell me more about this Katie Ledecky. There, I, I tell you what, there, I remember once, so the, the Olympic trials, and again, I, I learned everything. I went from zero to 100, right, in these four months. And... 
prior to that February day when I got the job, I probably could have named seven or eight members of the team, former members of the U.S. Olympic swimming team. So now in July, Olympic trials are taking place in Omaha, and the Bulls were playing a game in Norfolk. And I remember this because Julie Sandberg, uh, Jared Sandberg's wife, Jared's the manager of the Bulls, and her kids often come up into my booth, really fifth or sixth inning of every game when they're in the triangle. And they were on this trip with us in Norfolk. And the Bulls were playing, and instead of the TV monitor that I would normally have with the Bulls game on to show the replays, etc., I had it on NBC because they were airing the Olympic swimming trials. And so I have all these cards, these 900 cards that I put together for all the international potential swimmers and the U.S. swimmers, and I'm all laid out while the Bulls game is going on. And I would have longer pauses between pitches as I'm watching, you know, Simone Manuel in the Olympic trial 50-meter free or, you know, Ledecky in the 400 or whatever the race was because now I'm just trying. I was so invested, had to be, in this that that's how I spent my time. And still, though, when I, I didn't practice calling races until the middle of July. When I was a kid, I used to call Cubs games into a tape recorder, sound, sound down. I still do things like that now. But I knew I had to learn so much from, let's say, March 1st until when I boarded the flight on July 30th that I had to have some type of sequence uh, that made sense because I, I knew very little about the sport. I knew little about the splits, little about the athletes, little about the rivalries, little about the records, little about anything. So I really was starting from absolute scratch. So the first few days, I just storyboarded, as I often do when I'm trying to develop projects and concepts. I know what sounding like an expert would be like in my head. I know what, I know what that has to be in August. How do I get there? So instead of just diving right in with no plan, I really just laid out what would be the smartest way to build these blocks where I'm going in the right order. So if I learn this, will it be easier to learn the next thing? Will it make sense to learn the next thing? Or is that backwards? So I would scratch out my list and come up with a better plan. So once I had that devised, then I started to jump into, and it was really the basics. You know, it was, it was the strokes, it was the stars, it was the times, it was how, how teams are fielded. I mean, it was really as, as basic as that. And then that grew over time. So then I spent 15 minutes probably on per potential swimming athlete from all the different countries that could be in Rio. So this was my process. I would go to FINA.org. They would have the fastest, well, you could sort it as the fastest 100 times or 50 times or fastest 25 times in all the different disciplines. And printed that out and came up with a uh, three by five index card with the flags and the pronunciations and their names and all kinds of biographical information that I could scour on the web. It wasn't... I hate their career career time is this. It was it was the Campbell sisters from Australia, the two top freestyle sprint freestylers who grew up in Africa, moved to Australia because their brother had a, a disease and there was better treatment in Australia. That's why they moved there and now they're 
the two of the fastest in, in the world. It was those type of, again, it's all back to stories. Because I knew when I was a kid watching Chuck Mangione, you know, play the trumpet in Montreal. My first, my first recollection of the Olympics was in 76. I was six years old. And he was doing the closing ceremony playing his trumpet or whatever instrument he played. And everything was about the stories of the athletes. So now I have a chance to go be one of these people who tells story <laughs> of the athletes. I'm like, this is full circle but you're paralyzed in fear. So I had, and I'm not kidding you, I had like 944 different cards of all of these athletes, and it would take 10, 15, 20 minutes per athlete to find several nuggets that I thought might work. The trouble is, you didn't know who was going to be in the finals five months from now. So many of these never even made it. Now again, the only races we called were the finals. So, but again, it was all about the process of figuring that out. But now I owed it to myself and I owed it to the people who now were listening to the Olympics. This is what drew me in and attracted me to wanting to do this when I was six or 10 or 15 years old. So I have to honor that. If I don't, what have I done? It's kind of fraudulent. But that, that was my approach. So I didn't start calling practice races until the middle of July when I felt comfortable that I knew everything I needed to know. And I was studying like I was studying for the GRE, going to grad school. It was just, it was incessant. So middle of July, two weeks before I fly to Rio, I'm now sitting comfortable and ready to go. I'm on my couch, laptop up, races from London are on my computer. I'm ready to just call them with the, with the sound down. All of these athletes are going to be Smith in, in my head, in my call, because it doesn't matter who they are. I'm just calling what I'm seeing. So psyched up, ready to go, fingers on the play button. Boom. It was a train wreck. I didn't even get through the first 25 meters before I stopped and paused it. I got up. I walked around the house. I'm like, okay, well, that wasn't very good. What was bad? What I was trying to describe wasn't, wasn't good. Okay. It just it, it didn't have a comfortable feel. I wasn't quite sure what I was describing. So I thought I'd try it again. So I sat down again, re-racked to the same race, started again, got through 50 meters, stopped again, this sucks. This is awful. This is July 16th. I'm on a plane in two weeks. I shut down my computer and took a shower. And at that moment, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to be found out as just a charlatan when I go to Rio. I can't hide from this. This is going to wreck my career. I mean, I was... I was frightened, and I think it was just the, the added stress and the moment being magnified, and here it's coming, and everybody's all excited. I mean, the Bulls are putting out press releases that I'm going, and all my family knows, and they're like, oh, you're going to do great. All my, my colleagues in this league can't believe you're going. You're going to do a great job, and at that time, in my head, I'm thinking they don't know what they don't know. 
But they said, no, no, as much as you prepare and as, as good as you are, it's going to be great. Can't wait to listen. And I'm thinking to myself, you are not going to want to listen. So the, the other moment of slight panic that I had was my flight to Rio. I went from the Triangle to Miami and then Miami to Rio. Got to Miami, get to my gate. I see Rio on the board. I see athletes in countries' colors and warm-up suits at my gate. And when they started boarding, I boarded an enormous plane. It was a three by seven by three. It was huge. It'll be it, the middle of the seven. Yeah. It, I was on the aisle <laughs> on the left of the middle of the seven. And it was packed. Everybody's going down there for the Olympics. Athletes, the first two people that I recognize on the plane, I've met these two female uh, journalists once before in my life. Melissa Isaacson, who used to work for the Chicago Tribune, she's going down there to cover the Olympics, and Christine Brennan, Northwestern alum, USA Today sports writer. It's real. When I see them in there, and I see these athletes in their full country's gear, talking languages I don't understand, all going to Rio, when that door on that plane shut, it hit me. I can't get off <laughs> when this plane lands in nine hours or however long it took. I need to be ready to go. And fortunately, I was. It helped. The, so swimming was day one, right out of the gates. So I had day one through day eight. The afternoon of day one, and I had never met Dara Torres before. I talked, I talked with her on the phone a couple of months earlier. She's a 12-time Olympian, extremely well-known internationally in the sport, in swimming and just in sport in general. And when we talked on the phone and, and I said, tell me how much, how aware, how much do you follow the sport now since you retired for good? She said, not very. I mean, I have friends who are still on the team, <clears throat> Lochte, Phelps, Missy Franklin, some others, but she didn't know of the Katie Miley's and of much of the Simone Manuels and the Lily Kings, et cetera. And I said, well, what do you know about the international swimmers? Really don't. How much broadcasting have you done? Helped out once, I think in 04, Dick Ebersol of NBC needed some help, and it was terrible. This is all making you very comfortable. I was, yeah, yeah, I, I really was. When I hung up the phone, I thought, here's what I thought of that. In baseball, there's a term, what they use, overexposed. If you are a, if you should be a utility player or a player who should start twice a week, no more than that. If for some reason injuries force you into that lineup and you're playing five, six days a week, you get in baseball what they call overexposed. Yeah, they stop throwing fastballs. And suddenly you're hitting 110. And now you know what overexposed means. So I hung up the phone and I thought to myself, I really need Dara to be good and confident and comfortable and competent. Because if she's not, I'm going to be overexposed. Because, again, I didn't grow up swimming. I didn't watch swimming much. I've jammed, hopefully, a lifetime of swimming knowledge into my last four and a half months. But I need her. I need her to be good. And so my fear was when the lights went on for that first race, 
that once I did my initial IDs and got the eight swimmers into the water, my fear was, was that when I stopped and it was her time to assess the start of the race, that she wouldn't say anything. And if that happened, I was going to be overexposed whether I wanted to or not. So on day one, our coordinating producer sends us over to the uh, Olympic Aquatic Stadium to practice. So they had heats during the afternoon. The finals were that night. So we knew we had four finals that night. But we go over, and he knew that I was, the gravity of this moment would maybe be challenging for me to handle. And for her, he, she was a wild card. He didn't know what they were going to get from her. Now, we had developed a great rapport in the first couple of days leading up to day one, but that doesn't always translate. So he's back at the studio at the International Broadcast Center, and Dara and I are at our position, our NBC 23 position, next to the NBC TV people. And second or third race, he said, okay, you guys ready? And we had the, you know, we had the, the psych sheets and ready to go. Didn't matter who was racing. He just wanted to develop, help develop, which is what a good producer does if you're putting two new people together because it's all about the product. Sure. You guys ready to call a race? Sure, okay. And it was the slowest race of whatever discipline it was. And so we, we did a race. Got in the, I got them into the pool. And again, I'm thinking in my head, just as I was in that phone call a couple of months earlier, I'm going to get them into the pool now I'm nervous, and when I pause, I'll get my answer. We get them introduced, get them on the blocks, into the pool. I do the quick IDs, who's out quickly, who's where, and I pause. And I'm crossing my fingers, and I'm crossing my toes, and my, my heart is in my throat. What am I going to get? And she jumped right in and noticed a few things about the start. She talked for 10, 12 seconds, which was just the right amount of time because now they're approaching the turn. I can get the flip turns and get them back going the other way. And then I pause again after saying who's leading and who's making moves. She jumps in again. Wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect, she wasn't perfect. But at least it comforted me that she had a sense of her role of timing what our needs were from her. So we practiced maybe three or four more races, and then Mike, the producer, down the line says, what do you guys think? And he had some nice input on how to help. And he said, do you think you want to do another one, or do you think you're ready? And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think you're ready. And that was it. We took the headphones off, went back to the IBC, got some lunch, prepped on what our storylines were going to be, and the, the, other, the other part that was a little bit unnerving, but I've done enough national live events now where it, it, doesn't, it doesn't shake me. But I believe it was the very first race we did that night was carried live across the country. The, the window of the Rio time of these races in swimming up against when the Tonight with Rio show on Westwood One Affiliates was on, Kevin Cooler hosting that. A lot of the swimming finals were in that two-hour window. And if there was a major American in these races, they would break away from their interviews and their other content and come live to us. So it's not like it was live to tape. 
it was live. So you had to be right. There were no second takes on, you know, grabbing it from the studio. You just had, you had to be perfect. You had to be competent and, and ready. So we spent a lot of time talking about developing the storylines, who to watch, why, getting just enough of their nuggets of background in. And I had those, those eight index cards for the eight people in the final. Uh, and they, they, were, they, were a, they were a necessary crutch, a very comforting crutch for me. I got to let you go here soon because we each have games to call. Um, but if I can round that all together here, uh, how do you feel it went at the end? Uh, and did you feel like uh, we've all done sports we're uncomfortable with? And, and you, you mentioned that feeling of being overexposed. Um, how did you feel in terms of comfort and in terms of, hey, I belong here by the time it was done? So I think the first time I felt like, so I made some mistakes down there, and Dara made some mistakes, but they were, they were nominal that probably only broadcasters would, would recognize. But the, the moment I really felt like I belonged, and I'll go back to the story I told you about in London when the swimming broadcast for Westwood One evidently didn't quite hit the Michael Phelps gold medal. They, they needed to capture something from Michael Phelps that they could archive for history. That was my number one priority. So the second night of the games, the 4 by 200 freestyle relay, Phelps was the third leg. So we didn't talk about this in advance. We probably should have with the producers. But USA wins gold. In the wrap-up of that, as, I, as I'm bringing the anchor leg into the wall, for me, I'm thinking in my head, because it's not scripted at all, in my head I'm thinking, just like this is a team sport, it's a team win. So in my final call to the, to the wall, it was more the USA wins the gold medal, not and Michael Phelps wins his 19th gold. So that was a discussion we had after that race. And they, were, they weren't disappointed, but they wanted to make sure that I knew, listen, you got it. We needed something else out of that call. Now, Phelps has three more individual events and one more relay coming up later. Nobody really knew where Phelps was in his training, so there were no guarantees he was going to win anything else. So that was a really difficult night for me to sleep. And I remember texting my wife, and I said, I need you to pray for Michael Phelps to win a race. Because if he doesn't, that's going to be the last gold medal he wins, and that's not what Westwood hired me to do. So a couple of nights later, he's in the 200 fly, wins it, nail, nail the finish, and in my ears from back at IBC, I can hear the producer and the coordinating producer like screaming and high-fiving and clapping that the final 15 seconds, there's their sound bite. If nothing else, the rest, the rest of the games happens, or if you mess up a few more calls, we have this. So that was probably the moment where I felt like I belong. And I still think about it. And that, that, to me, I always, when we, were, when we were leaving Rio when the games ended, Mike, the accordion producer, asked me, so KP, different story on the KP, so KP, tell me how you feel now versus on the flight down. And I said, on the flight down, I thought that I could do this job. On the flight back, as we're ready to board, I said, I did this job. 
And that's the difference. Because everybody who's anybody in the media is down there. So you get there and you see Tom Brokaw and Bob Costas and Mary Carrillo and the top BBC and, and Russian broadcasters and Australian broadcasters. Everybody who's anybody is there. So you don't really need to prove yourself to them because if I see somebody walking who's covering the Olympics down there, they must be pretty good. And so I didn't need to, you know, show my, I didn't, I mean, who am I? I I'm, I'm first timer down there. Nobody knows who I am, but I think there's just kind of an inherent little bit of respect from everybody who's down there saying, well, shoot, if you're calling this or doing that, you must be pretty good at whatever job you're doing down here. So that was, that was comforting to know. Patrick, thank you. This has been uh, this has been awesome to to pick your brain and hear some of the stories. Uh, so thank you for for taking the time and sitting down with me. Absolutely, love the podcast, love the concept. We'll figure out a way to monetize it, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a real service to all of us in the industry and for those probably hoping to get in the industry. But thanks for making the drive over and uh, go Ball State. And that is the completion of our second episode with Durham Bulls and Olympics swimming announcer Patrick Keenis here on Play by Playcast. I can't be grateful enough to Patrick, by the way. We talked about this last week on the pod. Uh, we sat down in his hotel in Indianapolis. We did the interview when the Durham Bulls were in town playing the Indy Indians. Uh, we talked for like an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> he was very generous with his time uh, after they had just come in from Durham the night before. So I'm sure a little light on sleep and he had a game coming up that night and Indy happens to be one of the cooler places to do a broadcast in the international league. So I'm I'm sure when people come in, they not that they're never not that they're not focused for every game, but like Indy's just it's got a cool vibe. It's a cool place to call a game. You just kind of I feel like you lock in maybe a little bit more. Um, so I took a large chunk of his prep time for the night uh, doing the podcast. So uber appreciative to Patrick for doing this. And hey, when it comes to the swimming stuff, like. I just think there was some really good inside baseball there. Uh, and that's kind of the guts of Olympic broadcasting that I have been really uber interested in. And if you, listening to that doesn't make you at home go, I want to call the Olympics. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what does because like you can hear the, the passion, the work ethic, the effort that he put into this and then the rewarding nature of, of how it all played off in the end and uh, kind of the ups and downs of the legitimate, hey, can I do this, uh, turning into the I can do this, turning into the I just did this, uh, turning into the wow, this was one of the coolest experiences I've had. And it was neat hearing that unfold and, and just kind of watching Patrick's face as he talked about all of that unfold as well. So I appreciate Patrick for uh, really delving into all of that way going over on the time that I had asked for and uh, being generous enough uh, with his time to do this podcast. Uh, that being said, we will take a seven-day hiatus. Guest coming up next week. It's a mystery. TBA. Also means I haven't recorded it yet. So we'll see. Join us next Friday when we download another episode of Play by Playcast. Hit it, Marshmallow. We're out. We're out.